Hello, everyone, and welcome to Praise Chat, a show where we discuss the latest and greatest in movie news and television news and all big major motion picture type of stuff, uh, where I kind of just break down headlines and articles to kind of just talk to y'all about, give you guys my thoughts on them. So we're going to kind of just jump right into it and start with the first story, which is Christopher Nolan and where he's decided to go with his next major motion picture. So this all kind of started back at the tail end of last year to the beginning of this year where Christopher Nolan had released Tenet and kind of hoped it would spark the other companies, other theater company or other theater distributors like Disney and all these other places to start putting their films back out into the meet into like theaters uh, instead of delaying them and delaying them. Unfortunately, Tenet wasn't the one that kind of did that, but you know, he tried to show people. I mean, people still went to go see Tenet, obviously. Uh, it was a Christopher Nolan movie, but um, he just wasn't happy with the way Warner Brothers had handled that project. And well, not not really happy with unhappy with them, but he just thought it would do more um, and would make them more comfortable in releasing more of their projects that they kept delaying that year in 2020. Yeah, 2020. So what happened next is what kind of made him change his mood about working with Warner Brothers. And what happened next was the announcement that they were going to do a day and date release with their theatrical releases, meaning that all of their films will be released in theaters and also on their streaming service, HBO Max. As we all know, we kind of covered it on this show as well uh, a few months ago when it was announced, uh, or back in the beginning of the year when it was announced. It's past a few months phase. And we were kind of, uh, that, that announcement really shook the industry distribution movie world to its core only because so many other people have been trying to test this out, meaning Disney, they've tried as well with the whole day and date release thing uh, with Black Widow, and it caused a lot of controversy with its main star and with some of the other, you know, theater distributors and exhibitors and things like that. And you look at something like Shang-Chi, which was only a theatrical exclusive release, and that's made them more money this year than any other film they had released and put on Disney Plus and uh, put it on theaters. So it's kind of shown, uh, obviously people are still trying to figure things out as we go through this pandemic and things like that. But Christopher Nolan was basically kind of really disappointed when he started to hear that they were doing that with their upcoming slate of movies, which then prompted him to not really want to work with Warner Brothers on his next project. Now his next project is rumored to be about the creation of the, uh, the, about, uh, it's going to be a biopic about the person who helped create the atomic bomb. So that's what the rumored story is supposed to be about. Now, first, uh, uh, he kind of did what Tarantino did in 2019 or 18 or 17. Whenever like the Weinstein scandal started and he basically distanced himself and distanced his next movie away from that company and basically opened the doors for all these studios to kind of come in, be it Sony, Universal, anybody to basically start selling his movie. And he got to decide who, what studio got to make his next movie. Christopher Nolan was kind of in that position where so many studios wanted to be the ones to bring home his next film and to help him make his next film. Netflix was was like, we'll give him the world, we'll give him a theatrical exclusive, anything he wants, like we want that movie basically in our care. Uh, I believe Universal put a bit in and um, I'm sure Warner Brothers tried to, tried to save face and try to get him back somehow. 
but he decided to go to with Universal to uh, you know uh, give him give them the the rub so to speak and have them create his next film for him uh, and with him and in that in talks with Universal he also demanded a 120 day exclusive theatrical release meaning meaning that like the film that he makes cannot be put on peacock until after like i think two or yeah two months maybe in the theater maybe one month i don't know how it's probably like a two three month uh window of it being in the theater as you know peacock is going to be releasing halloween kills their next halloween film on peacock and in the theaters as well so they're kind of also trying their hand on it and some of most of uh and uh, and that's kind of been interesting because fast nine was a theatrical only exclusive so i'm kind of curious as to how they felt about halloween kills to make that a day and date release but uh not the other ones but anyways that's beside the point so about what i think about this is that i think christopher nolan you know has earned the right to stretch his legs and move around a little bit warner brothers is definitely a director studio but over the past few years it seems like especially with the AT&T factor and what happened with all that when they came in and kind of muddled a lot of things up switched a lot of things around and then you know now they're honestly on I think they're on their way out and Discovery will be taking over and they're probably going to be changing around things a lot more but we probably won't feel the effects of that stuff until like five years down the line in all honesty because stuff like that takes time and that merger is going to be a big one so I'm thinking that once that merger is fulfilled and, you know, maybe Christopher Nolan tries his hand at finishing up what he's going to do with Universal, you know, it may make him feel comfortable going to other studios with projects if he feels like he can get what he needs to get done in his storytelling and the way he tells the stories completed. Um, but I think that Warner Brothers still has a chance to eventually win him back once they kind of get their stuff in order, uh, because I feel like Christopher Nolan is one of those people that is very loyal because all of his movies have mostly been Warner Brothers movies. Uh, but I'm sure he would be open-minded to the idea of coming back and working with them. Like he did with all of his other projects. And, you know, he has the right to stretch his legs, you know, do what he needs to do to get stuff done. And I, I mean, I totally understand where he was coming from. Um, I'm not sure how upset he was at the whole thing. Because at the end of the day, like he did get uh, a theatrically exclusive release for Tenet. Um, I don't I don't remember if HBO Max had started at that point. Um, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember. But uh, I think he was just upset about how they treated other filmmakers and was like, you know, if they're willing to do this to people like Denis Villeneuve or Patty Jenkins, even though Patty Jenkins kind of got her payment, like they sorted stuff out with her, um, but not with James Gunn, people like that, you know, that have released movies this year and have been severely like at a disadvantage because of the day and date releases. I'm sure more people would have gone to see certain films like In the Heights or whatever if they knew they couldn't watch it at home. You know, uh, John M. Chu also. Uh, so I think that's what kind of rubbed him the wrong way about those situations. So I get where he's coming from. And at the end of the day, I'm still going to watch his next film. He's pretty he's pretty nice at directing. And uh, I enjoy the stories that I've seen him tell. So I can't wait to see what he does with that, with that project. And I'm kind of glad that it's still kind of up and running. So moving on to our next story here. We will be discussing Fantastic Beast 3 and the fact that it has now got a date, a release date, and a title. So, sorry about that. I'm trying to catch my breath. So, Fantastic Beast has titled their third film, The Secrets of Dumbledore. And the film 
is um, will be coming out April fifteenth, twenty twenty two. So as everyone knows, like the Fantastic Beasts series uh, is a spinoff of the Harry Potter series, a prequel spinoff. Um, I kind of came to the. I obviously grew up around the Harry Potter craze. But my parents, you know, didn't really want me watching those movies because of what they had heard about, like, the whole, you know, witch factor of it and the, you know, like, the, mostly, the, like, the witchcraft aspect of it. Uh, but, you know, I did eventually get to see the films. And luckily, my first viewing of all of the films were in the theater because they were replaying them in the month of, no- like, in the fall, like, entirety of the fall up until the next year, uh, including the Fantastic Beast series. Now, I kind of just stopped watching it after the the obviously the main Harry Potter series films, but uh, I've not checked out Fantastic Beast One or Fantastic Beast Two. But from what I've heard, they're kind of just been like you know mid to okay to some people consider them bad type films. Um, but they're, they're obviously they're not going to be everybody's cup of tea because art is subjective and that film is art. So I'm definitely like of the stance that I do hope that. They're able to continue to make these movies. You know, it's giving people jobs, letting the actors work, letting the director work, letting the crew people work, and things like that. And I feel like they still have enough time to make the story flow a little bit better. It seems like a lot of people have been having a problem with the writing, the ideas within the films, uh, especially because they keep telling the audience certain things like, oh, it has this in there, when in reality they're not really exploring it as much, and stuff like Dumbledore's uh, relationship with Grindelwald and things like this, which I w- it's, it's really a slippery slope to be doing that when you like make that a prevalent media press, but because you know you're obviously going to get headlines for things like that, especially with a major motion picture film like like something in the Harry Potter series. Obviously, that's going to have a lot of eyes on it, and um, I don't know. It's kind of been like hit or miss for some people, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm hoping this kind of gets it back on track. We've had two films. Uh, I don't know who's writing this. I don't know if it's J.K. Rowling again, or if she, she. It says that she only did the story at this point, but I don't know if she's the writer on it. I know she said she'd be writing a lot of these next films. So, um, and I think she wrote the first two, if I'm not mistaken, or at least the second one for sure. So, with all that being said, uh, we also have the cast. Kind of everyone's still reprising their roles, uh, excluding Johnny Depp. Um, it's only Eddie Redmayne as Newt Scamander, uh, Ezra Miller as. I don't know what his character's name is at all. I'm sorry, I don't I don't watch this movie is at all. Um hold on, let me let me click this really quickly. Okay, still not showing me jack shit. Jude Law as uh Professor Albus Dumbledore. Um who else was in it? Dan Fogler as Jacob Kowalski returns, and they also obviously added Mads Mikkelsen as the new uh Grindelwald and replacement of Johnny Depp. Which uh, should be very interesting because he's a very capable actor. A lot of people love his work. So it's going to be cool to see what they do with that. And my overall thoughts on it is, although I haven't seen it, I'm glad you know that they're making movies, they're doing their thing. I honestly cannot wait. I'm hoping that the rumors of the... they've been There have been like whispers and rumors of potentially like a HBO Max Harry Potter series that follows like the, bu- the books again. And the same story, like the main story, but just in a television series format and to me that is a is a little bit more interesting than (laughs) than the fantastic beast uh films but you know like i said i don't want to really knock on those films because i don't know what they're like i haven't experienced them for myself 
but I do, and I will, I do want to experience them for myself, but I'm just glad that they're doing their thing, you know, kudos to Warner Brothers, kudos to their Harry Potter, Harry Potterverse or making their money doing their thing and getting people jobs, so. With all that being said, good luck to them, and let's move on to the next story. And the next story is, uh, so basically, Illumination, which is a universal, which is Universal's, like, main animation studio, they have announced a Super Mario Brothers uh, animated movie, and it is, the cast for this is, like, stacked. Uh, it's going to be releasing on December 21st, 2022, and it is, the voice cast is led by Chris Pratt uh, as the iconic Nintendo character, Mario, and people like Anya Taylor-Joy, who's going to be playing Princess Peach, Charlie Day, who's going to be playing Luigi, who you may know from It's Always Sunny uh, in Philadelphia, Jack Black, who will be playing Bowser, Keegan-Michael Key as Toad, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong, and Fred Armisen as Cranky Kong, Kevin Michael Richardson as Kamek, and Sebastian Maniscalco as Spike. So, this is really interesting to me because obviously video games and movies have become, have you know, they're starting to make their way back into the, the limelight. You know, we had a string of movies like... Um, a few years ago with Assassin's Creed and then the new Tomb Raider with Alicia Vikander. And I want to, people like to say that Free Guy was a video game movie. It is not a video game movie because it is not based on an established video game property. Like for instance, Assassin's Creed, the one with Michael Fassbender, that's a video game movie. So, uh, and the one with Alicia Vikander, that's a video game movie. The upcoming film with Tom Holland, that is a video game movie. This movie is considered a video game movie. And I think it's interesting only because Nintendo has a tendency to not really make their films into a larger, like they don't like going out of the video game realm if they don't want, if they don't have to. A good example of that would have been like, there was a few rumors and whispers as well. Uh, I mean, they didn't want, they hadn't announced it yet, but there was a leak. Uh, I don't know if it was from the Netflix side or if it was from the, the, the Nintendo, obviously it wasn't for Nintendo because they got pissed at it, but um, there was a press trade or a press leak that basically stated that Nintendo was put, going to be developing a, a Link or Legend of Zelda series with Netflix of some sort. I don't remember if it was live action or not, but as soon as it was about to be announced, Nintendo completely shut it down and canceled the whole series altogether because it wasn't announced at the time in the way that they wanted. So they completely pulled the project from Netflix and said, like, never mind, we don't want to do it anymore. Um, type thing. So I'm curious if this makes them a lot of money. Money talks for a lot of different people. And although Nintendo is very much like a, you know, traditional company, they don't like to go outside of their comfort zone if they don't have to. This is kind of new for them. Obviously, the last Super Mario Brothers movie with John Leguizamo and all that was uh, is also considered a cult classic for some people, I think. I don't know. Um, I've never seen that movie either, but I just assume because uh, I assume it has like a cheesy, like, good filled nature to it kind of like the 90s teenage mutant ninja turtles movie which i did see and that was also epically awesome but nonetheless i think that this cast is stacked i don't know who's directing it uh or writing it but the cast is really really stacked so uh we've also seen chris pratt lead a lot of voice casting in movies like onward that was the last movie he did that was voice acting and then also obviously the lego movies which he had a big role in as Emmett, i believe so you know, he's obviously going to be able to get the job done. I'm sure 
all these actors uh having seen their work especially jack black as bowser you already know that's going to be if he could play a 16 year old girl in two jumanji movies i can only imagine what he's going to be able to do with bowser and it's going to be hilarious and the rest of the cast seems very very interesting so with all that being said i'm glad universal is kind of like you know upping their game a little bit getting back to that game and i'm glad that nintendo you know is taking a step into the water of potentially doing more things with their ips because people grew up with their ips i'm sure if this movie makes a lot of money we could see more nintendo stuff or i assume we'll probably see more stuff getting greenlit uh because it's an extension of making your ip as valuable as you can make it so and things like like uh the sonic movie um i'm sure that's a bit obviously that made paramount a lot of money made sega a lot of money so that probably inspired them to like dip their toe in with something a little less risky in terms of an animated movie which you know is going to make a lot of money because it'll be geared towards kids so i can't wait to see this movie it's going to be really fun i'm probably going to take my brother to see it and uh yeah that's how i feel about that so kudos to nintendo kudos to universal we can't see wait to see what you do with that film so next uh so this is going to be our second to last uh story here and it is the it is the it is about fast and furious the series so basically justin lynn uh i'm this is something i got from collider it says justin lynn says the end of the fast saga is one chapter in two movies meaning that fast 10 and 11 are going to be like a two-parter type movies where it's going to continue on to the next obviously all of them have been doing that but it's going to be a lot more closely tied together and from what he says, he said, I think having one chapter in two movies is correct. That's where I sit today. So it seems like uh, it was recently announced that the next, I'm reading off the article right now. It was recently announced that the next installment in the main saga, Fast and Furious 10, will make its way into theaters in the spring of 2023 when Vin, with Vin Diesel revealing that filming will begin in January of 2022. So, and it also seems like they don't have a release for Furious 11 or Fast and Furious 11, but I'm sure that they'll be shooting these two back to back, uh, as because, you know, they already know that this movie, the movie is going to make them money as F9 made them a lot of money as well. Not as much as obviously previous installments have, but with, with the pandemic and all that did, like that movie made a lot of money for the time that it's been taking place in, so to speak. So with all that, uh, I have been a big fan of these movies since Fast Five. I was kind of late to the party, but when Fast Five came out, I remember everybody was buzzing about it that summer because The Rock was in it. Kind of like that movie kind of catapulted him into pop culture hysteria, mainstream success that he has now. Um, and not that his other movies weren't good, but they just weren't like they didn't make him pop like a superstar like the way they did with that character in, in uh, Luke Hobbs. So. It was really, really cool to see him in those movies. And then I kind of got into those movies. Like, I did see the first, like, three. But I was just really confused once Tokyo Drift came around. Um, and I remember watching the first one and the third one, but never seeing the second one until way after the fact. And then one time, I think when Fast and Furious 6 was about to come out, I rewatched all of them, having been able to, like, actually pay attention and was able to understand what was going on a little bit more and absolutely fell in love with those movies. So... The Fast 9 one, though, like, it kind of broke my brain a little bit, so I'm hoping they kind of find a way to, you know, they've literally done all they can do, all that they can do in that movie. I thought that they would save a certain aspect that they used in Fast 9, primarily, like, prevalently, 
uh, for like the last two movies or the last movie that they would have done, but they already did it. So I don't know how they're going to up the stakes, but it's Fast and Furious, so you know they're going to do something crazy and Vin Diesel's going to live no matter what. Um, but other than that, really glad that they're getting another chance to like kind of close this story out. Uh, I never thought that this franchise would end. I thought this would be a franchise to run for like 24 movies or whatever just because they... You know, they could do it if they wanted to um, because the people are going back to see every single one. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting that they're saying, like, you know what? We should end this story the right way. Uh, in my opinion, I would have left the series alone after Furious 7. Um, I don't think we could have gotten any better than that. So to me, that's like the true Fast and Furious ending. But um, I'm still, you know, I'm glad that they get to continue doing their thing. And it's really hard because Paul Walker isn't there, obviously. Dwayne Johnson is no longer in the franchise, so that also has kind of like taken a little bit of life out of it. Um, but I'm kind of hoping they kind of scale back on the super always needing it to be a family drama and kind of just make it like go back to the cartels, go back to the the laundering or the, you know, something. But, you know, once, you, once you've opened the can of worms or like fight Mr. Uh, Mr. What's-His-Face's nemesis or whatever, uh, you know what I mean? Like something like that where it's just different. So hopefully... We don't get another like, oh, it's this guy's brother or this guy's uncle or something because that's the, I think that was also like something that really like frustrated me. I'm kind of glad that John Cena was his brother because I obviously love any actor turn uh, or wrestler turn pro actor. I really love those types of turns like Batista, The Rock, all those people, even though Batista would hate me comparing him to The Rock and John Cena. But they all came from the same similar background of professional wrestling entertainment to uh theatrical entertainment so it's really it's been really nice to see um john cena get his moment to shine and um in this film and although he didn't shine in this one as much as he did in suicide squad i'm still glad that he's going to be hopefully continuing on in the franchise i'm assuming so yeah with that being said we are now at the final 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 uh main main uh, article here sorry let me uh, get it together uh, okay, sorry about that. I should have had this ready, but I don't. Uh, I should I should insert uh, elevator music. I cannot talk today. So, so basically, I wanted to discuss quickly about Venom Two. So, Venom Two is a the sequel to the two thousand. 18 movie starring Tom Hardy. Uh, this time we have some new additional cast members and some surprising as well. Uh, some surprising ones are Michelle Williams, obviously Tom Hardy, who does the voice for Venom and plays Eddie Brock, uh, the character. So amongst, uh, I forgot the last guy's name, the guy that played her boyfriend, um, Dan, is also back in this film. And we have some new additions and Stephen Graham and Naomi Aki, I believe her name is. No, it's either Naomi Harris or Naomi Aki. I think it's Naomi Harris. Uh, Either way, um, she's in the film. Woody Harrelson portrays Cletus Cassidy, also known as Carnage. And in that film, and the the early reviews had basically kind of kind of came in a few weeks or a few days ago, and a lot of them have fairly been leaning positive uh, in the sense in the sense that. A lot of people have been, you know, praising it for leaning into its absurdity, but also still sharing a the improving on the tone and everything that was a little bit muddy in the first film. So it's been really cool to see a lot of people have fun with this film and giving it its credit where it's due. 
Uh, it was directed by Andy Serkis, who did an amazing job, in my opinion, and we'll get to that in a second. But here are some few uh, reviews from the major trades. Variety has called the sequel in an, an incomprehensible follow-up and described its tone as a cross between an 80s mismatched buddy movie where both characters shared the same body and off-the-wall Jim Carrey comedy similar to The Mask. And IGN, IGN hailed the film a success, calling it a fun and action-packed sequel that highlights Venom as his own character. And then Rolling Stone called the film another dirtbag delight and an actual B-movie, hardly as brainless as it seemed to be, oh so very willing and able to seem to be a piece of throwaway fun that I refuse to throw away. So those fans, and then also uh, the last review I can give right now or see is those fans, those who are fans of the antics will find Venom, let there be carnage, a very funny ride with plenty of well-delivered one-liners to cause at least a chuckle, if not a guffaw. So with all that being said, I also went to go check out Venom 2 yesterday and wanted to give my thoughts on the film. Uh, this will all be non-spoiler, so if you haven't seen the film, I won't go into spoilers. I'm just kind of go, going to go over what I felt, uh, what I liked, what I didn't like. Uh, I'll start with dislikes. Wasn't a lot to dislike here. Uh, I felt like, uh, I'm not going to lie, I, I'm not going to try to make up any dislikes because I honestly had a good time with the film, so I'm just going to talk about what I liked. <laughs> Um, so I thought that they that what the first Venom did so well was to establish a humanity and a sympathy between Eddie Brock and his symbiote Venom, Venom, and they did a great job of establishing that. And this film, Venom: Let There Be Carnage, is basically the first Venom, but notched ten amps up. So if you weren't into like the whole Venom, the first Venom, then you might not be into this one as well because it kind of just leans into everything you you loved or maybe didn't like about it a lot more but there's a lot of uh if you read more reviews and more critics a lot of them the first film still has like a 30 percent or something on Rotten tomatoes like 31 percent and this one has like i believe a 68 at the time of my recording this or like a really positive rating compared to the first one so a lot of people have been warming up to it uh especially the critics that had seen the first one that didn't really enjoy it i think that's very interesting because this film, you know, like the film itself is still, is still like, I don't know, it's big, it's boisterous, it is very much action packed. But what I liked about this film was the way it really handled the characters. I thought that Venom and Brock in this film were both well developed, and they made Venom even more likable in this movie and more human in this movie than he was in the last movie. We find out a lot more about him, which I loved. Um, they went into both of their sight, like their mental psychiatric like state of the of the two beings like very well meaning like how they interact with each other how they engage and i thought that the direction was you could tell the minute the film starts that the direction was handled with such bravado with such confidence and with such a flair to it uh that the first one didn't have i'm not saying that ruben fleischer's direction was bad um it's just that this one was just a significant improvement for me um the camera angles the cinematography uh, all of that stuff. Uh, Andy Serkis did an amazing job with the performances. And at first I was like, Andy Serkis is an interesting director um, because I haven't seen a lot of his work as a director, but I have enjoyed his work as an actor in the mocap industry and everything. Um, and out of the mocap stuff too. But I was like, this, this is probably going to work a lot better than I think because he knows how to make 
CGI characters feel so real, feel so human. And um, you get a lot of that in this film, especially with the Venom character. And he makes the film 10 times better for me. And obviously Tom Hardy's performance as Eddie Brock also does a massive amount amount of wonders in, in this role once again. Michelle Williams is here. She does an amazing job in the role that she's given to play. Uh, Stephen Graham, who plays... Uh, I don't want to say who he plays if you don't know, but uh, I think in the film they do show that he's a detective so, or, or a cop. So basically, you know, he did a great job in his role as well. And um, Woody Harrelson as Carnage, I thought, played his role... Uh, to perfection or at least nailed it and what he needed to do and what I imagined the character in the comic book to be and even though I've never really read the Carnage comic books I always heard about him in a certain way and watched videos on him that explained the origin of the symbiote that he possessed and all that stuff and I thought that they did a nice job of not making him too crazy but just crazy enough to fit in this movie and I loved uh, what they did with Carnage as well the visual effects uh, significantly, significantly improved to me. I still find it hard to look at Venom sometimes because the way his eyes look and the way he, he looks is just so. Uh, it's just a little bit still like it's. It gets hard for me. Like the Sam Raimi Venom looked a lot more like was a lot more pleasing to look at. But this one because he's a lot bigger and looks a lot more like the comic book. Um, I'm very curious to see how they'll improve on his on the way he looks in the future. But I'm sure that the way he looks is probably how he's always going to look. And the way they made Carnage was absolutely scary. Oh my gosh, I loved it though. Um, it looked like something out of a Carpenter film or something out of like a the, like the Thing movie, basically. Another thing that I wanted to highlight was the action. Uh, when the action comes, it absolutely hits hard. And with this film, the thing about the action is that this film was a PG-13 rating and a lot of people were worried that because it was, it would neuter the characters, the characters like impact in terms of Carnage and they said the same uh, same thing about Venom as well. But I thought that the amount that they were able to show did a great job at effectively portraying how violent this character could be. And when I tell you he could be violent, that boy was violent. Oh my gosh. There's one sequence in particular that I'm thinking about where I was like, wow, this is a lot of a lot of killing. I was like, I was like it was like that uh um like that line in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's like, I love the killing, and then Leo DiCaprio's like, Yeah, there's a lot of killing, like that's literally like, a lot of that happens in this movie. Um, obviously, there wasn't any blood splatter or whatever, but there's just a lot of death in this movie. It's crazy, actually. Like, the body count. Uh, I hope someone does a tally on that um, in in the future. But anyways, uh, there's just a lot of that more in there, and I thought it, they did it uh, not too much. They did it the right amount to show him in a very formidable way, and I really, really enjoyed um, uh, Woody Harrelson here. So with all that being said, uh, another thing that I wanted to highlight was the writing. I thought the writing was a lot better. The the screenplay was written by Kelly Marcel, and the story was by Tom Hardy and Kelly Marcel. And they did a great job of effectively making uh, making Venom and Eddie a lot more a lot more of like an odd couple, really connecting them in a way that that makes them feel more like equals than they were in the first movie because it kind of felt like. You know, they were just trying to, they were just always at odds and just trying to figure this thing out. And in this movie, it's like, it's like you're watching a married couple argue, um, or like, you know, have a little tiff or tatter, uh, every, like they love each other so much that they don't know how to express that they love each other. So they do it through arguments and through sometimes through physical humor and violence. But, uh, I do love their relationship really well. And I, I love the way they doubled down on it here because it works tremendous wonders for the film.
Other than that, I would recommend you stay for the post credit scene. I don't want to hype it up or, or hype it down because I just feel like when you go in there um, and if you see it with an audience, uh, it's going to be really cool. But uh, stay for the post credit scene because there is one. And other than that, I would say my overall experience with Venom 2 was that I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it improved tremendously on the first film. And if you like the first film, you'll like this one. If not, you know, I'll leave it up to your hands as to if you want to see it or not. But uh, it does double down and kind of does something different in terms of giving characters actual things to do and more fleshed out motives a lot better than the first one did. So maybe you do want to give it a shot and see it with someone that did like it because it may enhance your experience a lot better. See it with the crowd because uh, that also helps as well. And the little quick wits that they throw into the film with Venom and Eddie really work wonders in the film. So with all that being said, guys, that is the episode. Thank you all for joining me. I'll catch all of you guys in the next praise chat, and thank you for joining me. Peace.